Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. We're taping this. So just what do they call that when you let people behind the curtain, Dan? They're just letting them behind the curtain. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Backstage. So we're backstage here. So we're taping this. We're doing this on a Thursday afternoon. It drops on a Friday. So somewhere in between us talking now and this dropping, the Buccaneers of Tampa Bay will have played the Cowboys of Dallas, Danny Moses. So I ask you, who is going to emerge victorious in this contest this evening? I'll take Dallas and the points on the road. The truth is that the trends have been that the Super Bowl champion has actually covered in week one two-thirds of the time. That's why I ask you this shit. The Super Bowl loser, we'll talk about that game in a second, Kansas City, I believe, is horrendous. Prior to last year, something like 3-16 and 16 against the spread since 2000. The Super Bowl loser, you would think they would come out fighting, but that game, that Kansas City game against the Browns. I like the Browns plus six and a half, but I'm taking Dallas in the points, but whatever. And don't tell him Dominic. I know he's coming on the show next week that I did that because he'll never speak. No, it's the first thing I'm going to tell him. By the way, I think the Browns can win outright. The Browns, their defense is stout. I don't know how to spell it, but it is. And I happen (laughs) to agree with you. I hate the Cowboys, but I think they are, as what we say in the business, live dogs. So if you're listening to this on Friday and I'm wrong, at me all you want there, folks, because that's what happens. I'm taking Tampa at home minus nine okay dan you and i hundy a hundy on it all right chargers make the playoffs was plus 105 but yet brandon staley the head coach of the chargers to be coach of the year was 13 to 1 i would rather take brandon staley at 13 to 1 than the Chargers. wait guy did you hear what he just did he just did a would you rather i love what danny moses just i'm with you on that one i that that's worth a thousand dollar bet for sure for him to be coach of the year because that charger team you know, it's funny. That's a great team that got a new coach. You don't see that. That When I say great, I mean, it's a very talented team that got a new coach. And I think that's exactly what the Chargers of San Diego needed. See, I'm doing a lot of Eddie Murphy for you here. Chargers of San Diego, Cowboys of Dallas. You know what I'm doing there, Demo? Do, yeah. you, like what I'm, do you like what I'm doing? You're aggravated yeah. with me. I'm, I love you, bro. Let's go. By the way, <laughs> both Danny and Dan, you're listening to on the tape with the aforementioned Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. I am Guy Adami. A short week for the markets, but a lot going on. We're going to discuss the recent bout of volatility and warnings about a potential downturn. That's coming out of a few banks, by the way. Plus, Danny Moses is all geeked up. We'll dig into the top three that he's watching. And later, we're going off the tape with Packy McCormick, PMAC to you people in the know of the Not Boring Newsletter, and Scott Lynn from Masterworks. But first, let's talk about the markets here, because we got to a bit of a rocky start here in September. A lot of weird things going on there, Danny Moses. Thoughts? I'm going to sing to you guys, because every Please. once in a while, I get Please. the mood. September morn. Because it's just such a depressing... Wait a second, like, was that Diamond Glenn song. Campbell? Yeah, it was, that was Glenn Campbell, otherwise known as Neil Diamond. But ah, thank every, you. It's, it's really been a dark, and that's, I don't know, I think it's a dark song for just the way he kind of writes that thing. But that's what it's felt like. This September, this feels terrible. And there are so many things going on that make it feel that way that we can talk about, which I'm happy to get into here, but does not feel healthy right now. A lot of geopolitical, a lot of 
physical, a lot of international, a lot, a lot of things happening that I think are going to weigh on the market here. Yeah, there was a stat from Citigroup that bullish bets on the S&P 500 outweighed bearish bets 10 to 1 right now. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about an S&P that's, what, 1% from an all-time high. We've been talking about the concentration of some of the larger names. You know, the top five names make up 25% or so of the S&P 500. It's just, I know that a lot of people say, well, we've been here before, and it hasn't really mattered. I think when you consider some of the headwinds that we have to growth going forward, I think this is the, really the first time in the last year, okay, that we could really think about the back half of 2021 and early 2022, where expectations for growth were going to be less than expected. I think that a lot of strategist estimates for 2021 earnings and 2022 earnings really were starting to inflect right now. And when you think about Q3 GDP and the way it seems like Goldman and Morgan are tripping over each other to cut their forecast below 3%, which by the way, started at 8%. It just seems like there's something more than just a Delta variant scare here. It seems like the markets have not priced in what we've been talking about a great deal about how the global economy is going to have fits and starts the way it reflates. And I have to give Danny credit because you've been talking about stagflation before I heard, I think really anybody talking about it over the last few months. Danny Moses has been prescient in many of his calls. I I love it. He's also got a Browns helmet behind him. I know this is audio only, but for the video fans out there, I will tell you that behind Danny Moses' left shoulder is a Browns helmet. So I know where his That is not just a Browns helmet. That is a Jim Brown signed Browns helmet. You know what? It could have also been, guys. It could have been a Syracuse Jim Brown helmet. I, I honestly think in the 50s, they were very similar back then. No, you know, you make a good point, by the way. So Syracuse, obviously the home of some of the greatest running backs that ever played in the NFL and one running back that may have been the greatest running back in the history of NFL that never played, unfortunately, because he passed away of leukemia. A wonderful movie for those that want to go to Blockbuster this weekend. But I think we should talk about the market real quick because not only Morgan Stanley downgraded U.S. equities, Goldman Sachs, as you mentioned, the Citigroup note was really interesting. But now you start to have some companies giving warnings on the back of a dimming outlook on the variants. Some U.S. airlines, United, Southwest, American, Microsoft said, you know what, we're not going back to the office. A lot of weird things happening out there. A lot of people have been lulled to sleep on the back of a market that seemingly never goes lower. Are we whistling past the graveyard here? I think the investors in the U.S. wake up every morning and, you know, the game show, Big Bucks, No Whammies. I think they want to avoid the whammies. What's interesting is that one of the whammies, I think the elephant in the room or in Asia, is this Evergrande. This Evergrande is not small. This is a company with over $350 billion in global debt exposure. We can go into it later as it relates somehow to crypto here. But this is China's second largest property developer. And they basically stopped making interest payments. And so on top of the China cramp, cramp down on everything else that's been going on in video game industry and all of that and how social comes before profits and all this, not great timing here. And the fact that if Evergrande commercial paper is somehow weaving its way into the crypto market, what a great win-win that is for China. One, to, well, They've been propping these real estate companies up anyway, but can you imagine if they could also do some damage at the same time to the crypto market? So there's some interesting stuff going on. And I will add to that. I know we'll probably get into this later. Um, but if you look at the chart, when Bitcoin made that crazy move earlier this week from 52,000 to 44, that exact moment was when the debt of Evergrande, when they came out and said, we're no longer paying interest on this and their debt went under 25 cents. 
Is that a coincidence? I don't know. But I definitely there's there's an underlying thing here. I think this it, it's the Lehman of China right now. Well, it's interesting that you bring up China and, you know, over the last five years or so, you know, some of the biggest bouts of volatility that we've had on our shores with our risk assets have really emanated from China, growth scares, that sort of thing. I mean, we've been talking about a debt bubble, a property bubble, an asset bubble in China that's going to burst for, it seems like, more than a decade or so. It is worth noting, Danny, if you look at the Shanghai Composite, it's trading very near its 52-week highs. It's had a huge rip over the last month, month and a half or so. And so maybe they're propping up their equities. I don't know. I mean, do you really think that they would let this Evergrande go bankrupt? You know, uh, don't they have every interest in the world in, in not having those sorts of reverberations happen in their own economy? Dan, you might be right. I think the expectations are that China won't obviously let this fail. As a matter of fact, the reason the Evergrande stock popped up back a little, it's gotten destroyed here, is that they are planning to extend their interest payments and they're trying to get approval to do that. And I think that was, you know, that went through today, but I, I don't think that's going to help them longer term. And like I said, they have debt all over the place tied to many different things. So Guy Dami, if, if the ECB is hinting to... Love that, by the way. They're finally coming to grips with reality. They're going to start to do what we should have done two years ago, Dan. Please continue. Yeah. So what's wrong with the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield? Why is it... I don't know. Back That's below a good question. 1.3%. You know, it's interesting you say that because we traded up to 138 or so. Felt like we were going to make sort of a beeline back to 1.5% and it continues to sort of stall out. I don't know. The candid and the honest answer is, I don't know. If you had told me everything that's going to go on, especially now that the fact we're starting to see wage growth, I would have said that 10-year yields would be north of 1.5%. We can't get out of our own way. So I'm not sure. And I think you're smart to bring up the fact that the ECB is hinting at that because that's probably one of the things that have kept our rates ridiculously low is the fact that it's a relative value thing. So if they're going to start to move, we should as well. I don't know the answer. It's a very good yeah, question. So, so, you know, on a podcast guy, we just have listeners, right? We don't have mm-hmm. viewers. But I'm going to talk about this 10-year U.S. Treasury chart for a second. You guys can pull oh, please, it up. You guys please can pull it up on your, on your Google machines or whatever. And, you know, we had that double bottom July and August. It was 1.13%. And I think this really plays into Danny's theme about stagflation in a way is that what are we seeing here? We're seeing, you saw wage growth, right, in that last very disappointing jobs report. Now, you could maybe explain that away with Delta, but at the end of the day, even expectations for the next couple of months are kind of low. So we have unemployment above 5%. We have wage growth. We have GDP expectations just careening lower. And then you also have this situation of higher prices. Now, you know, we had this conversation about transitory, not transitory. Well, the fact of the matter is they're higher right now. And so I guess what I'm talking about yields is that draw a line from last year when we saw the U.S. 10-year at about, I don't know, um, at this time, maybe about 60 bips, 65 bips or something like that. And you see that uptrend. If we are to break that, and that's probably down there at 1.19%, I think that's the thing that sends alarm balls off. Because I think that, to your point, guys, about stagflation and the Fed painted into a corner and really having no real mechanism to kind of deal with this because we were never really worried about stagflation over the last two crises. Danny Moses has been. Kudos to him. And again, prescient is a word I want to use, Danny Moses. So good for you. And listen, we have to talk about this debt ceiling. Now, I typically don't think it's a big deal. But before we get to your rip off the tape, and this is going to be a good one, by the way, for you folks playing our home game. But Danny wants to talk about this debt ceiling. Janet Yellen ringing the alarm bells. I don't know where she's been, but ringing the alarm bells (laughs) saying, you know, there's going to be... 
borrowing limit. You got to be careful, blah, blah, blah. Is this a big deal, Danny? Should we be focused on this? By the way, in case you didn't know, I'm not a fan of hers either. I love how she says, don't make this political. And all it is is political at this moment. So I do think back to Dan's comment, why bonds are acting like this. I think not only is there a slowdown, and I realize it may be counterintuitive to think that you could have a debt ceiling problem and rates go down, but I don't think anyone's ever going to question the long-term viability, at least in the next few years, of the ability for the U.S. to pay their debt since they can just keep printing. That being said, the Treasury, for the, since the August 1st deadline of when the debt ceiling was supposed to be increased and hasn't, the Treasury can use extraordinary measures to basically pay bills, so to speak. And in August 2011, we all remember what happened. The market got crushed. The S&P downgraded the U.S. rating to AA+. Plus which is ironic because they were so excited to do something since they missed the entire subprime trade to downgrade anything, but they could not wait to downgrade the United States. They put them on negative watch a month before or something, but that happened and it killed the market. Let's not kid ourselves. What's happened in Washington in the last few years has been a disaster. It's getting more deadlocked by the day. I don't know when this infrastructure bill is passing. I don't know when the budget's going to pass. And what is this in the middle of all of this? So this is going to be a grandstanding episode that's going to go on for a while. They will take it to the limit. Eagle style, no pun intended, mm-hmm, and it, mm-hmm, it could get mm-hmm. dangerous. And I think that explains this trepidation in this market to not go full board. Let me just, one other comment on the ECB, ooh, slowing down, 60 to 70 billion a month, you know, instead of 80, they changed it from significantly higher pace to lower pace as far as, or slowed on the pace of purchasing on their multi-trillion dollar program. But so the debt ceiling is an issue. It's going to be here. We got, you know, the dot plot coming up with the Fed. We got a debt ceiling issue between the fiscal and, and legislative. It's going to be an interesting time period. So Danny, why do you think that nothing's moving here? Why do you think the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, they just don't seem to care? I mean, that's the thing. Listen, I've been throwing puts at this thing, you know, good money after bad for the last like six weeks or so right now. It's been really painful. And thank goodness for that rally in ETH. But to me, I've never seen a market like this that totally disregards things that seem very obvious to me. And there's like, to me, it seems like there are alarm bells screaming in silence, but the equity markets do not care here. I agree. It'll take a lot of retail pounding, a lot of meme stock destruction across the board, a lot of realization that Things don't trade on fundamentals. You saw the GameStop come out with the earnings. I mean, we know it doesn't trade on earnings. It trades on momentum and it trades on the belief in the future. AMC, because of a great theater box office last week, has now rallied another couple billion dollars. Those aren't sustainable. We've talked about this before. Those are the ones you have to watch to watch if there's truly not going to be a buy the dip mentality. And again, I think people realize negative equals positive down the road. If things do slow down, if the market's telling you, so the Fed's not going to taper, the Fed's not going to back off. They know this debt ceiling issue. I really disagree with you on the meme stuff. I think if you add all the meme stocks up together, it's maybe like $30 billion in market cap. And I don't think the retail is that important. I don't think they're the ones that are buying these dips. I think the buyers of those mega cap tech names, the $10 trillion that make up nearly 25% of the S&P and 45% of the NASDAQ 100. That's it. That's the passive investing that guy talks about so frequently. But Dan, let me counter that for a second. I think a lot of the smart hedge funds, institutions that have obviously or probably have their lowest short exposure they've had on record, right? True. They're watching those as an indication for other things. So while those may only be 30 billion, 60 billion, 90 billion, which by the way, used to mean something, it was a lot. I think it's more of the signal and the mentality of these, I think a lot of these institutions, are like you know what, I'm not. It's not worth it right here because it's not trading on fundamentals. It's hard to short things just on valuation. We all know that. Like you can't just pick a spot when it doesn't trade on fundamentals. It's hard, and I think people are using that as an indication. And I think maybe it takes those things to go down seventy or eighty 
to clue people in that this kind of run might be over. But we are, we're definitely, listen, we talked about it last week. And yes, the market hasn't sold off 1%, 2%, not even. I don't even know what the number is from the highs. And we could have one big rally, we'll be at new highs again. But I think we've been in an agreement. The one thing I think that we've gotten right is the unhealthiness of the patient that is the S&P 500. It's just not healthy. One of the other things, Dan, that you've dipped your toe into is the cannabis space. One of the other things you want to sort of get off your chest here, because quite frankly, those stocks have not traded particularly well over the last 30 to 45 days. Please educate me and our listeners, not viewers, Dan, listeners, because this is a podcast as to what's going on. Yeah, I mean, they really, I, I kind of took my eye off of them. I obviously watched them. I have an investment in a few of them. And all of a sudden I looked and some of these things are down 50% from the highs for the year. They're all down 20 to 25% over the last month. There is some reason for it, but I think the overriding reason right now is just no faith in Washington, no faith in any legislation moving forward. We had Schumer come out to introduce a comprehensive bill. We've had false starts, obviously, with the Safe Banking Act. And the belief here is that nothing now is going to get done. So that's the first thing that's kind of hindered it. It's a very retail-oriented sector still, obviously, in the U.S. names at least. Institutions can't own them. They don't own them in the U.S. names. They express it through their names up in Canada that ironically trade on the New York and NASDAQ stock exchanges. And so there's no sponsorship. So it's just kind of falling by the wayside. The second thing is that there's been some lobbying going on behind the scenes that are issuing these medical reports. One came out recently that did a study of 3,000 people at ages 18 to 45 or something and said they found that it can be bad for your heart smoking. But they don't mention is it's great for hypertension, great for diabetes, great for cholesterol, all of those things. So a lot of that stuff going on. So the last thing I'll say on cannabis is, and this is the fundamental reason that they're down, is numbers are starting to come down in various states. There's a lot of illicit grows. A lot of these states have approved home grows as taking zapping a little bit of demand. I just think it's kind of a resting period that will reaccelerate. But for the first time in a while, you are seeing numbers come down for certainly large multi-state operators here. So I think these things will rebound. It's going to take a catalyst of maybe moving your bill in Washington, getting people excited again. Like I said, it's been held in retail hands here, but I, I would not sell these things. I'd be a buyer on all these dips for sure. For the on the tape fans out there, rip off the tape has become one of the one of the main reasons they come. I don't know if they're allowed to do that. Can they just listen to one thing, Dan, Nathan, like you're allowed to sort of skip in these things. I have no idea how it works, yeah, but I'm sure there are people that sort of fast forward or rewind whatever the hell people do, just to listen to Danny Moses's rip off the tape. And we had Rebecca Jarvis on with us on the tape a few months ago, and she, uh, she broke all the Theranos news. She did the doc, the whole thing, genius. But you got something to say about the trial and what took place at Theranos and all those things in this week's segment of rip off the tape. See the, <laughs> the delay there, the pause. See the way I did that? It was dramatic. Please, Danny. All right. Well, having lived through the Wall Street crisis, having lived through the global financial crisis and watching basically nobody go to jail through it, anyone that knows me knows knows that I'm a capitalist, but knows that I can be an anti-Wall Street, Wall Street guy. And it makes me sick sometimes, the people that end up going to jail and the people that don't. Guy, before I get into the Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes situation, I want to talk about something that happened last Thursday night to very little fanfare ahead of kind of a holiday weekend and a holiday and, and all this stuff is that Renaissance Technologies, which is one of the largest quantitative funds in the world, made a $7 billion payment to the IRS, $7 billion, which was paid by partners and spouses. So individuals paid for it that are partners at that firm. The second largest settlement I think ever to the IRS prior to that was GlaxoSmithKline years ago at $3.4 billion. But why is it so meaningful? Because this had to do with the way that they treated long-term capital gains versus short-term capital gains. And this has been going on 
since 2005, when there was a, a Senate panel that wanted to investigate in general how funds use various swaps and products to kind of mask and turn short-term gains into long-term. But 9% difference created a $7 billion IRS bill. So to me, that just tells you how much money they actually made. And what is the deterrent in general for risking this behavior when you know you're not going to go to jail, you're going to make a lot of money over a long long period of time. And yes, maybe someday you'll have to pay the penalty, but no no one goes to jail on that. And the other thing this brings into effect is the way that Wall Street, in many ways, is connected to Washington. And you had Robert Mercer, a huge outspoken donor to Trump, which kept this settlement at bay for years while Trump was in office. And before that, Jim Simons, a huge Clinton and Obama donator, which I think kept it at bay before that. And so it just goes to show if you have the money and you have the means, you can get things done that other people just won't be able to. And I think it's unfair. Let me just shift over here to Theranos. Yes, it's a private company in Silicon Valley. It's not a quote Wall Street firm, but it still has all the essences, you know, all the essence around it. So the trial has started charged with 10 counts of wire fraud, two counts of conspiracy. So so right now, Elizabeth Holmes is on is on trial here. This thing topped out a $9 billion valuation. For those that don't know, this was a blood testing company that was starting to circulate in Walgreens, you know, you know, across the country and was about to launch. And in 2011, I think they made $500,000. And in 2013, they were burning $1 to $2 million a week. So the charges stem from them knowing these tests didn't work, which, by the way, put patients in jeopardy thinking that they were testing positive or negative for something they didn't know they had or didn't have. And then they went on to raise more money and, and just, you know, completely commit this fraud. So I believe she's guilty from the evidence that I've seen. And anyone that's been on the Wall Street world or private equity world, I'm sure would probably agree. But still, she has to be convicted by a jury of her peers. And we'll see what happens. But I'm just thinking that she's going to get off here and it'll be another person that gets off or get off with some slap on the wrist or something. And I just think it's enough already with, you know, it sets a bad example for her for Silicon Valley. Renaissance for hedge funds that you can just abuse and abuse. And if you make enough money, you'll be able to get away with it. And again, that culture and that mentality are the things that I think some of the things that are wrong with Wall Street private equity, in my opinion. So that's my rod on that. And this is going to be in the news over the next three to four months. And I'm just going to watch the trial and, and see what happens. I think that all makes sense. And I think a lot of it is just kind of out of sight, out of mind. It was a big story, I feel like, five years ago. And it was a big story because she had some very prominent board members. It was a very prominent VCs defending her. She was doing a media tour right up during the just the when the fraud was starting to be uncovered by the Wall Street Journal. So, Danny, I suppose, you know, a, a bunch of the information that you have about the story was the Wall Street Journal reporter who was breaking this news, who wrote a fantastic book, John Kerryrew's Bad Blood. A lot of prominent board members, a lot of prominent VCs invested. Um, it really felt like she was going to kind of get off for a while because she was a media darling. But this thing does not read particularly well to me. And, you know, I I suspect she's going to jail. It's amazing to me. I was always fascinated by the story. And again, Rebecca did an amazing job. You should go back and listen to that podcast. But it just goes to show you in today's world, if you look the part, which she clearly did, you can pull the wool over some of the brightest people's eyes. And that's to me, is the story here that nobody, quite frankly, did any of their due diligence on the back of this. They threw money at her. And that's where we've gotten to in society. Anyway, just my two cents on this entire thing. And Dan, I'll close it up by saying that's 100% where I first learned about the story or details about the story was the article in 2015, I believe, or 2016. I can't remember. It's been that long. And the company didn't file for bankruptcy until I think 2018. So this has been already Strong out over a period of time. Well, when we come back, we'll go off the tape with Packy McCormick. A lot of you folks out there know him as PMAC of Not Boring and Scott Lynn of Masterworks. You don't want to miss this one, folks. Stick around. 
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Hacky McCormick is the founder and writer of the Not Boring Newsletter, which focuses on what's going on in business, new technologies, and strategies. He recently launched Not Boring Capital, a venture fund investing in companies with stories to tell and helps tell them. Scott Lynn is the founder and CEO of Masterworks, a first-of-its-kind platform that allows investors to buy and trade shares in blue-chip art. His goal with Masterworks is to open the door to anyone who wants to invest in artists such as Picasso or Warhol without having millions of dollars to buy paintings. He's a self-proclaimed serial entrepreneur starting his first company at age 15 and is one of the country's top art collectors. Gentlemen, welcome to On The Tape. Guy Adami, we've convened some brilliant art minds here for a little bit of a discussion because to kind of inform us and our viewers, actually, because we kind of have a boomer set. Wouldn't you say so, Guy Dami? No doubt. No question about it. So Packy came on in early July. He had just gotten done writing a couple great pieces on his blog, Not Boring. One was on the internet. It was a deep dive on Ethereum. One of the use cases we discussed on top of DeFi. I think we spent more time on DeFi, but was NFTs. And you just wrote another piece on Solana called Solana Summer, an Ethereum competitor. This is something that obviously a lot of NFTs are also being built on. Scott has taken a different approach towards the art world. Scott built a company. It was pre-pandemic, and it was really about fractionalizing art, democratizing art. And so we're going to get all this. We're not posing this as one versus the other, but we really want to kind of flush out what the heck's going on here. So, Packy, I'm going to start with you. Go back to when we first started talking about this stuff. Listen, I know you've been doing this for a very long time and looking at these things. What is going on with NFTs specifically as it relates to digital art? We're going to get to the fine art aspects of this too, but what's going on in the last few months? There have been a few boom and bust cycles throughout all of this. I think the beginning of the year, people set it off by selling his everydays at auction for $69 million. CryptoPunks have kind of been on this slow and steady rise or fast and steady rise the Board Ape Yacht Club is another kind of profile pick type NFT project that people show off in their profile picture. Those have been on a steady rise. I think those are really for the people who missed out on owning CryptoPunks and wanted to do their own thing where they could get in for cheap. Those are no longer cheap. I think at auction today, a package of 101 of those sold for $24 million. So those have been crazy. There's been some really interesting stuff happening as well through art blocks in particular, the generative art movement. Explain the generative art movement, because this is something that is kind of very foreign to what Scott's going to kind of talk to us about. And it's kind of foreign to people like Guy Domini who are not digitally native here. What does that mean? Sure. So caveat here, there are people, I had dinner with somebody last night who owns a ton of these and is deep in the space and is doing it for the art and like really loves this stuff. I am viewing all of this mostly as an observer. I'll like experiment a little bit, but this is all too rich for my blood at this point. The generative art movement is essentially art meets code. So you'll have some building blocks and an algorithm that creates art, and you'll throw different hashes into the algorithm as the art is minted. 
And so as you're going to mint the art, you don't know what you're buying. You're just saying, yep, I'm going to buy something and it's going to be kind of in this style. And depending on like kind of the time and the hash that goes in at the time that I mint it, something will pop out. And so maybe it's a squiggle. The Chromie squiggles were one of the early projects. Frankly, I at the time was like, this is so dumb. Like I, I kind of get CryptoPunks. This is really dumb. Those are now worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's been a bunch of really, really interesting projects. There's been others that combine kind of sound and art. And so I think some of those are pretty cool, but all of them kind of throwing something into the pot, something emerges, and that's what you own. Scotland, you started Masterworks pre-pandemic, and probably the craziest thing you ever did was buy a Banksy, right? People were telling you that that won't appreciate. So talk to us a little bit before we kind of do this fractional art versus NFTs and really kind of think about this in a more holistic manner as it relates to scarcity, as it relates to the ability for these things to appreciate and what you're actually getting. Talk to us about Masterworks. Give us how it started, how it's going. Give us a sense for the business right now. I think if you take a step back and you just think about the art market generally over the past 200 years, and a lot of people don't totally appreciate this. If you look at someone like Sotheby's, Sotheby's is 275 years old. Christie's, I think, is 250 years old. So art is an asset class that's literally been traded for centuries historically between the ultra-wealthy. And today we often see paintings that sell for $10 million. This year we'll probably have a half dozen paintings sell for $100 million. But the definition of a painting for centuries has really been a real tangible painting historically made by someone who has what we call, quote unquote, cultural significance. And to us, that means they're collected by institutions, they're collected by museums, they have global awareness or global demand. And I think a lot of that today is changing with NFTs, which I guess we're not frankly sure how to think about it. But Art and art prices historically has always been driven by scarcity. So I think there is this common denominator between scarcity in the NFT world and scarcity of a Picasso or a Da Vinci that ultimately over time drives prices up. So Scott, I appreciate that. This reminds me a little bit of horse racing maybe a decade or so ago. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a time when only the wealthy could own a thoroughbreds. And then they got into a business of fractional shares. Am I accurate there? Is it the same type of situation? I thought for a second you were going to reference gambling, but... (laughs) No, that's a question for Packy in about 10 minutes. (laughs) Well, there's also Zedron, which is NFT-backed digital horse racing. So it all follows the same path. Yeah, but I guess that's a fair analogy. Can you speak to the business and a masterworks? I mean, just walk us through it a little bit for Luddites like myself. Sure. So again, if you go back to this idea that art for centuries has been this very interesting asset class that's appreciated over time. And a lot of our research shows that if you look at contemporary art, which very specifically is art created after World War II, that segment of the art market has appreciated 14% a year from 1995 through 2020. I think you very quickly subscribe to this idea that this is an interesting asset class and people should be investing in it. That The challenge is that In today's world, to really allocate to this asset class, you have to have millions of dollars to buy a painting or tens of millions of dollars to build a portfolio. So it's not really accessible. So the only way to make it accessible is to, quote unquote, fractionalize it or what we did, which is really by taking an individual painting, filing it with the SEC as a qualified public offering and then selling shares in these works of art. And that's really been the very first time ever that there's been an investment product in the art market or that one of these paintings has been fractionalized. And so what you're focused on, what sort of paintings, what sort of works, what dollar value, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, it's super interesting. When we look at what segments of the art market are most investable, there's kind of two common denominators. One is that it's really contemporary art or art created after World War II, so art created in the past 75 years, but also art that generally is over a million dollars in price point. And what we find is that for paintings that cost less than a million dollars, the volatility or the variability in return is so high that you just can't predict the outcome. I mean, if you look at paintings that are less than, say, $50,000 in today's world, it's like buying a lottery ticket. You literally have no idea how that painting is going to perform in the future. So you guys are a regulated alternative asset manager. Is that correct? <laughs> That's correct. How many investors, and I'm doing this in air quotes, how many investors are on your platform and what is kind of like the average size of their participation? And do they do it one off, like by painting or is there like a fund? Yeah, I mean, all, all good questions. So we just recently crossed 200,000 investors a couple of days ago. So that was a big milestone. The type of investor really varies. I mean, we have investors who are investing $500 in a painting. We have investors who are investing $10,000 in a painting. Our average investor over time has moved what I would consider up market. So we're seeing people on average allocating tens of thousands of dollars to multiple paintings over their lifetime rather than hundreds or thousands, which is where the business really was when it first started four years ago. So generally, we're working with what I consider mass affluent investors. They make over $100,000 a year. They're interested in allocating some portion of a portfolio to art. They're picking and choosing paintings to invest in. So these are all painting by painting investments. They review works of art very similar to how they would look at any other investment in terms of how has that individual painting been appreciating historically? How do we think about the size of the artist market? How do we think about risk for that artist? Um, but ultimately, choosing painting by painting. All right. So I saw on your website that $60 billion in physical art approximately turns over a year. It's a $1.7 trillion global market. Yeah, it's pretty massive. So when you do the turnover on those two numbers, you know, you can think of it as a three to 4% turnover every year, but it's a massive market. It's our view that this is the largest asset class, which has never been securitized. That's never had an investment product built for it. It's pretty incredible. All right. So here's the thing, Packy, two and a half billion dollars in NFT sales in the first half of this year. Okay. Then July, we see 1.2 billion. And then in August, supposedly three and a half billion. Okay. So Scott, if you invest in a painting on Masterworks, you guys suggest that you're going to, it's going to be a three to 10 year hold or something like that. We just talked about a bundle of 101 bored apes that just traded for 24 million months after they were minted. So is this investing? Is it pure speculation? Is it gambling? You know, you had said at the beginning and some of these generative sort of things, you thought they were kind of goofy. Is it getting a little goofy? Because after the Beeple thing in March, I think that a lot of people were like, that was it, right? Like, you know what I mean? And then look what's happened, right? Over the last few months. I think it's all of the above and it depends on who's doing it, right? Like the tools are there and the liquidity is there for you to treat it like gambling, for you to treat it like trading, for you to treat it like investing if you'd like to, for you to treat it like collecting if you'd like to. So there are some people who are buying some of these projects who are never, ever going to sell. Their at least stated intention is that they're never, ever going to sell. There are other people who have rigged set up to make sure that they are getting the new projects that are dropped as soon as they're minting the new projects, as many of them as they can, and flipping them on the open market for as much as they possibly can almost immediately. So I think there's the range of like bot traders that you would see in a DeFi market, all the way up to people who are collecting pieces that they think will continue to be significant. I mean, I think it's interesting to note, like Scott mentioned, that if you're talking about kind of the $50,000, $100,000 price range, it's almost insignificant and almost like buying a lottery ticket. 
most of the NFT sales that are happening are in that 50,000, sub 50,000 range. The headline ones are a couple of millions of dollars. There's not a huge swath of these projects that have achieved enough cultural significance that they're this asset that you can have a ton of confidence in retaining its value over time, particularly at current prices. But I think if you look at a CryptoPunks squiggles, I mean, like, you know, you could look back and say, probably if I were alive at the time of Jackson Pollock, I was like, this is ridiculous, right? He's splattering paint on a canvas. So it's kind of crazy. That was my reaction at Chromie Squiggles as well. But I think it was the beginning of this kind of generative art movement. And so there's just some value associated with the early works of any type of yeah, so so I was just going to say, we've actually spent a lot of time on this question in the art market itself. Are people actually buying things for investment purposes, or are they buying things because they love them, right? And we, we often have investors or skeptics in the art market say, oh, people are not looking at this from an investment perspective. They're buying a painting because they love it. We 100% disagree with that, right? Like when someone is spending $10 million on a Picasso or $30 million on a Warhol, they're certainly not saying, oh, I'm going to hang it on my wall because I love it and it's okay if it goes to zero, so I think there's two common denominators between both NFTs and real-world art that are interesting. One is everyone, to a certain extent, is looking at it from an investment. And maybe that investment thesis, I guess, is different. Like NFTs, clearly, I think, are much more speculative, higher risk, potentially higher return, where art is less speculative but lower return. The other common denominator, which I find really fascinating with NFTs, is this ego concept, right? I mean, clearly, if you buy a Picasso and you hang it in your living room, you're doing it to make a statement. I think if you buy a CryptoPunk, you're also doing it to make a statement. I don't know how you think about that from a value perspective, but it seems interesting. Totally. So, I mean, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago called Status Monkeys, and it's kind of comparing Eugene Way wrote this essay called Status as a Service, talking about what it takes to create a, a social network that has staying power. And it's a combination of social status, utility, and entertainment. And if you look at what's happening in NFTs, and probably if you're looking at the traditional art market as well, it's a combination of those things. One, you get social status for buying the right NFTs, for displaying it in the right place, et cetera. Two, it's entertaining in some sort of way. The bidding process is entertaining. Showing it off is entertaining. You're getting entertainment value out of these. And actually, there's a bunch of derivative projects being built on top of them. Like there's Punk Comics, Larva Labs, which is behind CryptoPunks, just signed with UTA. So clearly, there's going to be more on kind of the merch and entertainment side there. And then there's utility. And so some of these things, again, you kind of get utility just by the investment piece of it. You get utility by accessing certain groups of people. There are some interesting projects. I mean, Etherrock is crazy. Someone just decided to find this old project where there are rocks being minted. And now it's a status symbol because they're so unbelievably expensive and it's just a picture of a rock. And so there's discords where just these people who can afford to spend $2 million or more on a picture of a rock are in this group. And so this is like the who's who of crypto people. There's another one called Nouns where every day they're dropping a new one of one in this Nouns project. So it's like if CryptoPunk released at the same time, Nouns is releasing one a day. All the money goes into a treasury that this group of people can decide, do we want to give this to charity? Do we want to build new projects? Do we want to do X, Y, and Z? And so they're joining this community of people who are involved in that same thing that they are. So I think there's a bunch of this stuff. I think social status is a huge piece of it, but I think there's a bunch of different stuff happening. Yeah, I remember my aha moment was actually when I saw someone who bought a CryptoPunk make it their Instagram profile pick, right? Like that, I think, is an interesting example of just displaying social status in a virtual world. But would any of this happen if we didn't have a two plus trillion dollar crypto market? 
just because crypto is a thing in 2021, it didn't mean that you couldn't be trading JPEGs at these values. So connect the dots on that a little bit, Peggy. Totally. If there weren't crypto millionaires and billionaires, there wouldn't be a top end of this market, just like if there weren't fiat. And I, I don't like making that comparison either. But, but people who have millions and millions of USD or billions of USD, there wouldn't be the top end of, of the art market. So certainly you need that piece to be there. What I think is also happening and where I'm excited, I, I have no view on any one of the projects and their long-term value from here. I think the technology, this is like someone in 2017 saying, you know, I don't like Bitcoin, but I like blockchains. And kind of saying the same thing here with, with NFTs, where NFTs are just kind of the the token that sits behind any asset. You could put a picture of a dog. I don't know if you've seen this one, but the original Doge, Matt Levine wrote about it today, the original Doge picture that spawned the whole Doge thing. Someone bought it for $4 million. The Dow purchased that for $4 million. Then they fractionalized that and sold it. And I think it had, as of last week, like a $225 million market cap, just the tokens of that particular thing. So here's the thing. So we're going to do a little explainer, and you just kind of crossed over back to Scott's world. Okay, so a Dow is a decentralized autonomous organization. And then you said they bought something, a digital image, and then they fractionalize it. Scott, are you just kind of chomping at the bit here as Masterworks? Is it, you know, do you guys have a DAO somewhere that we don't know about here? So this is a really funny background. So most people don't realize this. I don't think you guys actually realize this. So when we started Masterworks, the intent was for the entire project to be blockchain. So the idea was that we were going to take fractions of paintings, of real-world paintings, and basically assign ownership via NFTs our very first offering with the SEC was was actually a blockchain offering. And that sat in the SEC for over a year and a half. And we finally pulled it because at that time. Yeah. They, they, we they, should they, give Gary Gensler a call. He, he, he sounds like he's really open to a bunch of these crypto projects at the moment. You know, it's so funny, though. I talked to a company a couple of weeks ago. I won't name the name who said, we have this reggae on file with the SEC. It has it has crypto language. We're going to be the first ones that are approved. And I remember feeling like that four years ago. <laughs> how do you think about it now? Is it a regulatory thing stopping you from, because I, I don't even actually know how it works and I'd love to hear your thoughts, but let's say that you own a Basquiat and a bunch of people own it. What's stopping you from minting either like a, you know, p- pixel by pixel and distributing to people or an image of it and distributing just so they can also show it off in their digital spaces? Yeah, so there's two different ways to think about it. One is if you if you want to actually fractionalize the object, right, which is really securitizing the object from a regulatory perspective, that obviously therefore is the security. The image itself becomes a little bit complicated. So when we go out and we buy a $20 million Basquiat, which in today's world we're doing routinely, we don't actually own the copyright to that painting. The artist foundation owns the copyright to the painting. And that's just copyright law in the U.S. that could vary outside the U.S. I, I don't know the answer to that. So we don't have the right to do anything with that image. We have the right for the painting, but the image and the copyright to that image is owned by someone else. So we can't touch it. Interesting. Have any of the foundations started thinking about what to do with the images? And how do they think about that when somebody else owns the physical version of the painting? You know, so it's funny. So the um, I think you might be familiar with uh, the Warhol Foundation doing NFTs. Yeah. So they did these NFTs. And, and the big question in the art world was, and the Warhol Foundation is one of the most litigious foundations in terms of protecting copyrights. The big question was, you know, when they do these NFTs, are they going to assign the copyright to the NFT or will they not? And they didn't, right? They explicitly said they wouldn't assign the copyright, which we'll get to this in a bit. But like to us begs the question of what are people buying if they're buying an NFT with a digital image where the Warhol Foundation said we're not assigning the copyright, 
And there it is. I mean, Packy, he just laid it down. There's the there's the gauntlet right there. So what are you buying? He wants to know what what are you degenerates on the internet buying? That's a, such an interesting use case because it breaks down all the different pieces of the actual the actual work. To me, the argument that you would make, and I actually don't know if this is the argument that I would make, is that there is some sort of provenance where you're buying the thing directly from the Warhol Foundation and you're the person who owns that thing from the Warhol Foundation and then maybe a celebrity comes in and buys it in between. And so you have that whole chain of ownership on chain that kind of gives it value. But yeah, in that case, I don't know. If somebody owns a physical version, you own this digital version that doesn't have copyrights and they own the copyright, who knows? I, I actually, do you, do you know what it went for or how many they sold? Or I don't know what it went for. I don't. But I do think that's the interesting example that we're we're struggling with, right? And the, to go back one step further and talk about kind of the legal framework so that the challenge is then if the copyright does transfer. So in that specific example, if the Warhol Foundation would have agreed to transfer copyright, then at that point, it's a security again. So it just, <laughs> you know, I feel like we're kind of caught in this. this All right. So here, here's one. And Packy and I were just talking about this recently. So let's just say that the physical rights and the digital rights are one. Okay. So then why won't we start to see smart contracts created where when that Warhol trades that a certain percentage of the next sale, right? Isn't this the whole thing about these smart contracts? Is that something that you see on the radar? There's actually a law in France. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, that entitles artists to resale royalties. So this concept has been explored in the art market and in other countries. I think from an artist's perspective, it's very interesting, right? Like when you look at the probability of becoming a successful artist, it's really low. And I, I always hate to say this because there's always friends I have or kids are artists or, you know, so it's don't follow your dream is basically what you're saying, Scott. I don't know if I would follow your dream if, if you want to be an artist. I mean, we, we have 100 artists today that are 64% of the art market, most of which are not living. It's very hard to become successful. So a lot of artists have said, hey, we have to have some sort of resale royalty concept. I think it's an interesting concept, which a lot of people would support. So, Scott, this is a multifaceted question. I apologize. But obviously, most of the artists, their works, these artists have passed on, clearly. But there are obviously artists that are alive. My question to you is, what does the art world think about this? It tends to be a pretty snooty group of people. And what do the Christie's and the Sotheby's of the world think about all this, if you can answer that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different constituencies in the art market that feel differently about it. I mean, obviously, from a market perspective, it's great because Masterworks is bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars a year and new capital into the art market that otherwise wouldn't be there. So anyone who's in the market loves the fact that we're the number one buyer now and that, you know, we're growing quickly. I do think there are certain groups in the art market, like artists in particular, that really don't like the idea of art being thought of as an investment. I think, frankly, that is a fine opinion, but the reality is it's already thought of as an investment. When you go to a gallery, whether you're spending $100,000 on a painting or whether you're spending $10 million on a painting, it's a huge number for the average person. So I, I think the entire market for centuries has been built around the ultra-wealthy and pretending that, that that doesn't exist just just isn't the reality. And it's interesting, too, because that conversation exists in the NFT. T world too, where some people like even feel bashful talking about certain pieces as an investment or uh, as something that might in the future in some way generate cash flows or like any of the monetary pieces of it. Although they're spending all this money, a lot of them really just want to view the pieces as as collectors would. So, Packy, so the question that I have, and I, you know, I've kind of heard different examples of NFTs and how they're being used today. But how do you think about the different segments of of the NFT? market outside of what I would describe, and I don't know if this is how, how you would describe it, sort of is like NFT fine art. What other use cases are there? So yeah, it's a really good question. So there's the 
art piece of it. And I don't even know if you'd actually count CryptoPunks and Bored Apes. Like I, I put them in the PFP group. In the fine art group is, I guess, Art Blocks really at the center. Hick and Nunk, like a bunch of other kind of more looks like art, but backed by an NFT. There's been a lot of buzz over the past week about a project called Loot, which I don't know if you guys have seen this, but essentially it is a black box with eight lines of white text that are just words that describe different items that you'd get if you were playing a game. They dropped these for free. You could mint them if you just happened to be online on Twitter at the time and saw that it was happening. These things are also worth tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, these loot bags. Each one of the characteristics that you have in them has different rarity traits. So if you have a divine robe, that has a certain rarity trait and actually gives you access to certain discords where only divine robe holders are allowed in that discord. The interesting thing about something like a loot is that it's just this kind of primitive and the thing that people are getting really excited about. I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out myself, frankly, but it's just primitive that people are building all sorts of stuff on top of. So there's the word, then artists are taking it and saying, all right, here's what this word looks like. People are thinking about game worlds where you could play with these different things and that you need to have something in your loot bag to actually be able to play that thing as a character and what kind of attributes do these different things have. And so I think like this is one of those ones where you look back in six months and it was this silly thing that people spent way too much money on and it was kind of an insider thing. Or you look at it as maybe this wasn't the project, but this idea of using kind of these primitives to build new things on top of in a decentralized way is super, super interesting. I, the the maximal decentralization in this one is, is tough, I think, because now the project essentially doesn't have a leader and it's community owned and anybody who's ever built product before knows that that's really, really, really hard to do without kind of a central leader uh, kind of moving the thing. But I guess that speaks to the fact that there's just a ton of experimentation going on here and some things are going to work and some things are totally not going to work. There's NFTs in games. I think that's super interesting. So I think probably the most obvious use case for this is if you said, look, in Fortnite, you're spending all of these V-Bucks to acquire items that you can only wear inside of the game world that you pay money for. But if you leave Fortnite, if you stop playing, they have no value. Now, if you buy them as an NFT, one, you, you own them in the game. Maybe they accrue more value over time. But two, if you ever want to quit the game, you can just sell those to somebody else. And so I think that's kind of that's kind of interesting. I think that's this company called Mythical Games. Mythical, yeah. Yeah, they've, they've been super successful, it seems like, so far with that. Well, that's the thing. I mean, why are we here? Because, I mean, I keep reading more and more not boring stuff your your thing on axie infinity and the play to earn things and and then all this stuff that's going on there I, and i get it you said well if you're done playing the game then you can just sell it to somebody else that's assuming there's a bid for it and i'll go back to the start of this conversation so you talked about why are any of these things whether they be physical art or digital art why are they worth anything you talked about cultural significance okay and it's really hard in the moment right now to place your finger on anything in the digital world the Beeple thing will be culturally significant, whether it's worth $69 in 10 years or $690 million. You know what I mean? That will be the cultural significance if it really was a moment. But a lot of this other stuff, who knows? You know, And so when Guy and I were thinking about this conversation, we've been in the markets for a long time. I know you started, Packy in the markets as a trader. We've seen pockets of speculation. You know, I've been in the markets for 25, guy for maybe 35 years, and almost every single pocket of speculation bursts at some point. It just does. Okay. Now, some of them are reborn on the same fundamentals, but it lacks the FOMO. And the example that I would use is that 
in the late 90s, when Amazon.com topped out in 2000, or I guess in March of 2000, it lost like 85, 90% of its equity value to its lows in October 2002. And then it reflated, but the markets were ready for it. And the economy and the consumer experience and the customer experience, all that stuff was ready for it. And then it lost 65% of its value in the global financial crisis. Now it's a two trillion dollar market cap company. And the idea of conducting our daily lives without it just doesn't seem very likely. But for every Amazon.com that was two trillion, there were hundreds of dot coms that just went away, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, this is the classic Gartner Perez hype cycle where there's a technology trigger. It gets overinflated because everybody imagines all of the things that you might possibly do with these things. There's speculation, there's hype, there's FOMO. That is Almost certainly happening here, actually at the top of the 2021 Gartner hype cycle, NFTs are like right at the peak of the peak of inflated expectations. And then inevitably in like everything that kind of makes it long. Do you want to short them if you could short them? No, I wouldn't. There are certain projects, right? If you could get a borrow rate that made sense, you'd probably short. Or there's certainly some pair trades that I'd love to make. But I think Masterworks pair trading, that you guys have a secondary market. I mean, is is there anything to do here, Scott? I mean, we do have a secondary market, but I, I don't know how to think about shorting shorting, <laughs> shorting NFTs. Do, you think Gary Gensler would have a, have an issue with that? I think, I think he might. What I think is interesting, and I'd love, Scott, your thought on this is like, You just said there are 100 artists, essentially, who drive most of the art market. People are still creating art all the time. I'm sure there are speculative bubbles around certain types of art at certain different times, and then kind of the the winners emerge over time. Do you see that, or like, are there good recent examples of like 10 different artists in a in a particular style getting popular, and then one emerging over time? There's definitely examples of that. I mean, I I think the art market though is different in that we don't really see price explosions like we've seen in NFTs, right? I mean, most of these artists take decades to build their career, they slowly grow in prices. We don't really see pops like this. I think one of the questions that I have personally when I when I think about this question of are we in a bubble with respect to NFTs, like when you look at the correlation between public equities and Bitcoin and Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ethereum and NFTs, those correlation factors are all very high. And I just wonder if something happens to public equities, does that collapse all of the other markets? Well, that said, I mean, the amount of liquidity that's been sloshing around the system, you know, one has to wonder if everything that we're seeing, and I'm extraordinarily respectful of everything that you've built, your peers have built, but one has to wonder, but for the fact that Federal Reserve's balance sheet's now north of $8 trillion, would any of this be going on? And I happen to think, just as an aside, I think crypto was born from this concern that central banks are running amok. I'm just curious your thoughts. Packy, you first. Certainly, that's one of the main talking points in the space. I'm personally less of a central bank bad crypto good kind of person, but certainly is particularly on the Bitcoin side. The idea that the Fed keeps printing money is their big kind of rallying cry. And obviously, this is all related to the fact that there's a ton of money in the system. There's people sitting at home with free time. I'm sure in some way it's tied to the fact that it's really hard to get people to come back to work right now because people are just having fun, making a lot of money, doing things that wouldn't be possible if there weren't a lot of money sloshing around the system. So certainly that's part of it. That's why I said I wouldn't bet on any particular project or another. What I do think is really interesting is the idea of ownable digital assets that you can carry with you across the internet and that you can sell when you're done using them and all of that, that idea, I think, will certainly, particularly as more and more and more moves online, that will certainly be valuable. I have no idea kind of what the instantiations of that are going to be. Yeah. And I think a lot of people ask, are real assets, I guess, including crypto inflation hedges, 
we've spent a lot of time thinking about this masterworks. I mean, I, I would love to say that, yes, definitely art is an inflation hedge. We frankly don't have the data to prove it. I think when you look at the data on crypto, you, you can kind of conclude it's actually not an inflation hedge, but it is a speaking point. And theoretically, real assets should be inflation hedges, but I think the analysis is complicated. All right. I got one last crypto question here. So, Packy, I've said this a couple times on Fast Money, and I'm speaking to probably less of a crypto-centric audience that's viewing CNBC, but I kind of feel like Bitcoin has a branding problem. It's called a cryptocurrency, but it's really a crypto asset. And you and I have talked about this, and I've heard you talk about it, write about it, that sort of thing. Its value is its store of value, or the belief that someone thinks it's a store of value, that sort of thing, okay? And then when we think about Ethereum and smart contracts, whether it be Solana or something like that, to build on those platforms, you have to use that currency, right? And therefore, there's the gas fees and that sort of thing. But then if you're Visa and you're going to go and buy a CryptoPunk, you actually had to take fiat or Bitcoin and you had to convert it into Ethereum, ETH, and you bought that CryptoPunk for $150,000. So I'm thinking about the term cryptocurrency now. Help me out here because Ethereum feels like a currency and Bitcoin feels like an asset. I think that's right. I mean, there's a lot of things that are being built, not a lot, certainly less than the other ecosystems, but people are building things on top of Bitcoin to make it easier to spend Bitcoin in certain places. But certainly the the vast majority of the value is just store value and just belief that other people are going to think that this thing is also valuable. I think the closer that something like an Ethereum in particular, but maybe a Solana or maybe some some blockchain that hasn't been invented yet, the closer they get to Bitcoin's market cap and if they ever flip it, that's a really interesting question is like maybe Ethereum is actually just the better store of value as well. I don't have a, a strong view there. I mean, there's something beautiful about Bitcoin having the $21 million cap, not being able to do anything outside of that. But I don't know. I mean, Ethereum to me and, and Solana actually fits this in a lot of ways as well, but much, much lower transaction fees is that you do need to own it to build on the platform in Solana's case and soon to be in Ethereum's case, you need to stake it in order to validate and protect the network and you're able to earn money by staking it. So you put up your your coins to say, I'm going to approve this transaction. If I am a bad actor and try to do anything bad, my coins will be taken away from me. And so people can actually earn money by owning these assets. Any transactions that happen and create fees go back to the holders of those tokens. So they're a cash flowing asset. They're in some some way a store of value and you need them also to kind of spend on top of the ecosystem. So they are kind of a currency there as well. They do a lot of things. It's a hard asset to think. They're also burned. So they're also like theoretically deflationary. Yeah. Yeah. So since you were here last, you started Not Boring Capital Venture Fund. Talk to us. What are you focused on? Yeah. So I launched Not Boring Capital back in April, had you know kind of been keeping it open for fundraising, but it essentially gotten to the point where it's $9.99 million, which is the, the max that I can do if I want to go over 100 investors. My goal for this is to not have huge institutions uh, as my investors and have you know as many retail investors as, as possible come into the fund. And so I have deployed you know the vast majority of that fund actually already and have been doing kind of across all sorts of, of industries, stages. I recently invested in a company called Ramp, which did Series C. It's a company called Scale, which did Series E. So do a little bit of later stage stuff all the way down to super early stage stuff. I've done a couple of really interesting uh, crypto projects recently as well. And so I'm going kind of more and more down that rabbit hole. I'm only allowed to do 20% out of my non-qualifying investment piece of the portfolio. But we're spending a lot of time and the world is spending a lot of time talking on crypto. There are some projects for which it makes 
all the sense in the world and there's really interesting things being built there. And then there's a ton of projects for which it makes no sense at all. I'm having that, that conversation with portfolio companies. Some, if they have a community or they need to build a network effect, sometimes it makes sense. Most of them, it does not yeah. make very much sense. I think that's probably more Scott Lynn's take here. All right. So Scott and I got to know each other over the last few months. We've become friends here. Our mutual friend, Joe Marchese, shout out right there, um, introed us. And I've been really just impressed with what you built. You and I have been talking about your business a lot. So talk to us about what's next for Masterworks. Is anything that's going on this year and a lot of what we just talked about with digital art, has that kind of informed any future plans? I know that, you know, you guys are an asset manager. Are you launching new funds? What's what, what's on the horizon here for Masterworks? Yeah. I mean, again, I think when we take a step back and we just think about the size of the asset class, right? It's a massive $1.7 trillion asset class. Today, we run this website where people come to the website, they pick and choose paintings to invest in. It's a very simple investment product. I think when we think about the future, we think about how do we build out new investment products, so fund products instead of single asset products, and how do we go focus on new types of distribution? So how do we think about the world of managed money? How do we think about financial advisors? How do we eventually sell into institutions? So that's really how I'm thinking about it today is what additional investment products can we bring to market and then and then what additional type of distribution? Well, listen, guys, thanks a lot. I think we settled nothing. Um, no, but we learned a lot. And I hopefully Guy Adami probably. Guy, did you learn a lot about, about the crypto? My eyes are now wide open. It's incredible. I'm I'm going to I want I want to get a Rothko part ownership because that man was just a genius. Well, I will tell you this: on Masterworks, you just go to Masterworks.io. There was a Rothko. There was a Banksy. There's a Herring. Right? Literally, it just seems like you're going up and up as far as the sorts of works that you guys can acquire. So, congrats on that. Um, everyone, take a look on that. I'm going to be looking on that. I actually own as many Masterworks investments as NFTs. I'm a huge fan. And that was actually a point I meant to ask you earlier, because to me, it seems like right in your wheelhouse in a way, as far as diversification. Diversification, democratization, like the fact that you get to own these really, really cool assets. To me, like they're kind of the same thing that I'm going for. What I would love is to be able, it doesn't have to be NFT, just display my Masterworks ownership in more places. Like that's probably the big difference. And you don't need an NFT to do that, but I want to show off if I'm if I'm buying Masterworks. I think we have a little collab here brewing on on the tape here. Well, listen, guys, thank you very much for coming into the studio. Thanks for hanging out with Guy and myself. Danny Moses would love to have been here, and I think he'll find this conversation kind of fascinating. But thanks a lot, guys, and let's do it again. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.